I would like for us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we will begin. And I read this text last time. There's some dovetailing with the last message. I feel the burden of the Lord to continue to talk about the gospel's creation of the house of the Lord. To take this a step further... In fact, last time we talked about God's temple as the alternative to the Tower of Babel. God's temple in our city is His alternative, the, the, um, the genuine creation of a unified people where God actually builds through a unified people in Jesus' name. Uh, that's God's will for our city. We talked about the fact that the gospel releases a new creation when people believe. You know, justified by faith means my sins are forgiven and I've joined the covenant by faith given by grace. But it also means that I have been recreated, that I've been transformed. I'm not merely forgiven, but I'm a new species in the Spirit and have the power to live victoriously over sin as a testimony to the Lord, according to Romans 6-8. But then the next aspect of the new creation, which is least emphasized in our church culture, but is most emphasized in Scripture, and that is the creation of a new people who are unified in Christ, the ecclesia, the church, which is the ultimate expression of the new creation. You have this new international body or society which makes the church God's eternal purpose. Now let that sink in. The church is God's eternal purpose because what Randy read about, in fact, both Randys to a degree, read about the future of creation. That must be a Randy thing today. The new heavens, the new earth. And the vision of the new creation that we need. Uh, that's the ultimate purpose of God, where He will restore all things and reconcile all things in the Messiah, and then all things will be glorified and will be completely touched by and glorified by God Himself. It will be the immediate new creation. Uh, so that's what we're looking forward to, and there's much to say about that. You know, Much to say from the Scriptures and much to say once we experience it. But in the meantime, the church should be looking like a reconciled and unified creation. And the irony of that, if you would, is that we participate in that. We must be the church. We can't just let God do it magically. We must conform to the calling given to us in the Scriptures by the Spirit and become that unified people so that we can foreshadow a unified creation. Those things are tied together throughout Ephesians, especially in Ephesians 3. That's the whole point. The church is the testimony of the coming age. So we have to get our act together in order to make a statement to the heavens. Again, which that's in Ephesians 3, that the, the wisdom of God is manifest through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. So that's for us to state. So we must be conformed, not just as individuals, but as corporate entities. In our cities, we must make declarations. Hey, you powers of the air, 
this is what Jesus did on the cross. Not just my forgiveness. It's this family that has no other business being melted together as a family. That It's God's eternal purpose now to predict His eternal purpose that was read for us for the future. That's a very powerful statement. For me to, to make that statement, for us to hear this, and for people, perhaps a few, to listen by this recording, I'm going to post it, it's really for us, but if others listen to it, Mom, if you're listening, that's mainly my, I don't even know if she listens, actually, I'm just kidding. But um, that it consigns us to fulfill our calling and to carry our stewardship to build the church of Jesus Christ according to the will of God because it is God's plan and it puts the responsibility on our shoulders to partner with the Lord to build His house. That was last week. We're going to carry that a bit further this week. So I'm starting in 1 Corinthians 3 to justify uh, the use of this metaphor of the temple to refer to the house of the Lord as the church, right? So in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3, Paul speaking as an apostle, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. Now that has to do with the situation in Corinth and the different wisdom being offered by different people, uh, be they leaders or just members of the, the congregation there. People are having influence and Paul saying, you better be careful how you influence. Whatever you do, and I taught this to my students in First Corinthians class last, last time I taught, two times ago. Whatever we do or don't do influences the house of the Lord. That's just the way it is. Whatever we do or don't do, it influences the way the house gets built. If we're inactive, there's influence there. It compromises. If we're active positively with gold, silver, precious stones with our encouragement, with our prophecy, with our love for one another, it has glorious influence. If we, have, if we do negative things, it has influence. Everything we do builds the house of the Lord. We're all bricks. It's not just the leaders. It's all of us. So whatever we do, and for God, it's all for the house, which is part of my burden this morning. His eternal purpose is to build His house. That's through harvesting new disciples, discipleship, building family, it's all about building His house. And it's what we're all doing, whether we think we are or not. Gotcha, you're all in this now. <laughs> and so Paul says, look, I laid the foundation through my life. Again, that was also quoted for us. You know, fear and trembling and much weakness. The way he came to that city, the way Paul lived, and out of that life, the gospel that he preached, he laid a foundation which is... Nothing but Jesus Himself. Now Paul says, y'all are influencing that temple, so be careful how you build. You're all building, so be careful. So each person must be careful how he builds, for no one could lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Yeshua the Messiah. So he's using the temple metaphor. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, Silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each person's work will become evident. So there's, there's the metaphor telling us that everyone has influence. doesn't matter if it's good or bad, it's happening. There's no escaping it. And in the end, it will all be revealed. The goodness and the quality of our works will be revealed. 
He says, the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. If any person's work which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any person's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. And what he's saying is, it's possible to have your works burned up and still be saved. It's possible to separate the the state of your soul from the quality of your work. It's possible to do that. He's not saying every false prophet will just be judged for their works, but they'll be saved. He's saying it's possible to be saved, but still live worthlessly in terms of building God's house. He's not saying that applies to every person who contributes poorly. There are some who contribute poorly who aren't even Christians. He deals with them in this letter. You know, sometimes the way the ancients write, they don't qualify the statement in that moment. It's to be qualified elsewhere. So that's what he's saying. It's very possible for us to be like, yes, we'll make it into the heavens, we'll make it into the age to come. But as Jesus said, you know, there are there will be the greatest and there will be the least. So it's possible for us to make it through, but the fire we made it through burned up all our works. It's just we get there by ourselves. With no reward, with no greatness in the age to come. Wow. And yet, in verse 16, don't you know that you are a temple of God? So there's our metaphor. But it's not just a metaphor. It's the fulfillment. So it's it's literal also. We are the actual house of the Lord. And the Old Testament building was a metaphor pointing to us. So he says, and there's an urgency here. This is typical for Paul in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? Well, here he's asking the question of the congregation and the church collectively. Don't you know that you collectively are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If And then here's the qualifier for those that might be in danger. This part doesn't apply to us immediately, but you can at least see the urgency. If any person destroys the temple of God... God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. So again, that like that verse is an oracle, which is actually unusual for Paul to speak that strongly. After he just says, you might be saved, but as through fire, here he says, and for those who bring destructive influences, God will destroy him. But it's all about building God's house. So that verse, even if it doesn't apply immediately to us, it still illustrates the urgency. In God's heart, the importance of building his house, his human temple, is of the ultimate, utmost importance. Absolutely. So today I want to talk about this as it relates, okay, the house of the Lord as a collective unit, as it relates to the presence of the Lord. So with that, I have two texts. I want to start in Isaiah 6, and this is, this is, no, I already started in 1 Corinthians 3, didn't I? So, but for an Old Testament text, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This is a little dangerous because this is like an extra add-on text. I don't want to take too much time with this. We'll see if that's possible. I'm choosing this passage because it has the presence of the Lord in the temple of the Lord, which is my my topic today but it puts 
that combination, which is what we're after today, the combination of God's house hosting God's presence, actually living God's uh, God's presence living in His house. Can you hear me over there, Thomas? But it puts that combination in the context of a society that's going through serious political shifts. There's nothing more important that we can do during a time of political upheaval than to build the house of the Lord and to see Him exalted in and above that house. That's the most important thing we could do, for real. Our involvement in our politics and our influence on our society are very important. And we should do that in good conscience, I believe, as salt and light. We should do so free from the system, not needing certain leaders to be installed or certain policies and ideologies. We should need those things in order to be loyal followers of Jesus and to flourish as followers of Jesus and to have peace in our hearts and in our homes. We, we don't need the system to be friends with us in order for us to follow Jesus effectively and have peace. So we should be free and then from that place of freedom have our influence. So go for it. But that's not primary, it's secondary at best. What's primary is building the house of the Lord. Because that's God's eternal purpose. And it's a high privilege to be involved in God's eternal purpose. It's a tremendous privilege to build that house and to be that house. So here we go in Isaiah 6.1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. And that's really, even right there, that's my main text. Because it's in the year of King Uzziah's death, which symbolizes not only a shift, you know, King Uzziah enjoyed greatness as a, as a loyalist to Yahweh, and because he was loyal, because he turned his heart to the Lord and worshipped the Lord, God blessed him and made him supernaturally effective as a king. It says that he was wondrously helped in the stories and the chronicles that speak of Uzziah. And he built all these lofty towers. And he made war inventions. He, was, he oversaw an elite army. He saw the, the putting together of special forces, of, of new war inventions, of great buildings, not only as strongholds in warfare, but just in the accumulation of wealth. He was highly blessed. Because he was so blessed, however, he turned that blessing and that prosperity into his own arrogance. And he defiled the office of king by mixing it with the office of, of, the, uh, of, the, of the priest. And he went into the house of the Lord to burn incense, which he had no business doing. Uh, it wasn't his role, but he thought himself so great he could basically do whatever he wanted. And as a result, he, he threatened defiling the house of the Lord. The Levites, of course, the, the uh, family of Aaron and the priests confronted him and brought him out. But not before he first got angry. And then, of course, the leprosy broke out on his skin, which shows now his own defilement. And he was rushed out of the temple and he died outside of, of the community of Israel. He died in his leprosy. And so that symbolizes, you know, good leadership that went bad and opened the door to a, 
uh, a progressive downfall for Judah. However, when that shift occurred, the prophet saw the Lord reigning as king. So he saw Yahweh exalted in his own theocratic political power as an assurance, you know, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, this is not going to shake me, even though you're about to face troubled times. Isaiah and his remnant of, of children and disciples, and there were other prophets, you know, they were going to experience God's kingdom on the earth. The point is this. God was not seen exalted, separated from his house. The two go together. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. You see the seraphs in verse 2. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice in verse 4. And the temple was filling with smoke, which, which, is, which is cool, because that happened when the tabernacle and the temple was dedicated to the Lord. God came in and filled his house. No one could even stand in it. And here it's happening again in a prophetic vision. As if there's a renewal in the house of the Lord, God's refilling it. Well, we live in days of political insecurity. But that's the time when we become prophetic and we put our eyes on the Lord. But we have to realize we cannot put our eyes on the Lord abstractly. We have to see the Lord exalted His way, and that's always attached to His temple, which means it's connected to the building of His house. Even though it's only the train of His robe filling the temple in verse 1, that's kind of showing it's like the outskirts of God filling the temple, the point is He's still in His temple. It's just that He's simultaneously in His temple, like even us, while being transcendent at the exact same time. It's both. That's the beauty of and the mystery of God. That it's it's like in his temple, because the picture is here that Isaiah has stepped into the precincts physically when he saw this vision. Like he stepped over into the precincts of the temple on the in the temple area and had this vision. And so he's in the you know the the, the presence of the temple. And it's at the temple both literally, I believe, but definitely in the vision, it's at the temple he sees the Lord exalted. That's why it's the train of his robe, right? Because he's present in the temple, but he's simultaneously transcendent. Which means the temple is the touch point to see God most clearly as the transcendent Lord over creation and over the nations. It's important we build God's house if we want God's presence as the exalted one. That's the point. Most especially during troubled and insecure political times. Amen? Amen? Amen. Yes. So another verse like this, Psalm 27, very familiar to us. Psalm 27, beginning with verse 4. So seeing this through the grid of 1 Corinthians 3, we're legitimate interpreting the temple from the Old Testament as speaking to us about the human ecclesia in the New Testament. By doing so, I'm not diminishing the importance of seeing the temple as literal when we're studying the Old Testament, as believing as some do. I happen to believe the same thing, that the temple will be rebuilt before the end of the age, that those texts that speak of the temple 
are um, when, when Jesus talks about the end times, those are literal and future. There must be an abomination of desolation set up in a literal temple. Perhaps they'll even be, um, you know, in, in the end of the age that Ezekiel's temple is literal, in the you know, in, just in terms of it being a memorial at least. But in any case, I don't diminish the importance of any literal temple. But 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Peter 2 show us that the temple of the old does symbolize the house of the Lord made up of all nations in the new. And it's with that that I'm reading these texts, with that in mind. So in verse 4, now listen to David's language, familiar to us. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate or to inquire, or to in, uh, to discern in His temple. So it's very important for us again to, to draw out this idea of the temple. Because we usually read this verse, and, and rightly, as David speaking about his devotion to God's presence. And it's used as such in the house of prayer context. You know, David loved God's presence. He wanted to encounter God He wanted to experience God intimately, personally, uh, existentially, like heart to heart, actually experiencing and encountering God. But he does not say, this is the one thing I asked for, that I would experience your presence. That's too abstract. From a Hebrew mindset, if you want God's presence, you have to be in His house. So he doesn't ask, Lord, this is the one thing I want, to see your beauty. He doesn't jump there. He says, if I want to see your beauty, i got to be in your house. So that's what I'm asking for. The one thing I ask, and I'm going to seek it. So I'm not just going to ask for it, I'm going to fight to get there. That I dwell in your house. Because that's where I see your beauty. I see the beauty of the Lord. Just like Isaiah. In the temple, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord in the temple. And he was transcendent above the temple. But I saw his transcendence above the temple. In the temple. There's something about the gathered community as the temple of the Lord that manifests God's presence in a more poignant way than it's manifest anywhere And in order to go forward, we must go forward with that conviction so that it energizes our attempts to build God's house, God's way. This is why I'm urgent about a vision for what church is. It's not because I like to whine about the way other people do it. It's because I believe this with all my heart, that God's presence is manifest His way most powerfully and mostly according to His will. What I mean by that is that it's the greatest expression of God's will to express His presence in His house and through His house. And there is no greater expression. That's why David must associate the presence of the Lord with the house of the Lord. If he wants presence, he needs the temple the way the apostles allowed Jesus to design His temple through them, and then with the people that are influenced by the apostolic and prophetic ministries. That's kind of a mouthful, but it's important. Did you catch that? Jesus has to build his own house, Matthew 16. 
but he does it through the wisdom of apostles and prophets and then those of the house who are influenced by them. Okay, God loves all of his people and wherever Christ is proclaimed, in this we rejoice. And God moves through his people no matter how they do the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. And we should have the same spirit of humility. We're just happy to fellowship with God's people and we'll serve them in any setting and we're not going to be all hung up on doing things a certain way. Amen and hallelujah. Having said that, I don't think God appreciates our building His house any old way we want to. I don't think He's into that. At all. I don't think He's mad and ready to judge everybody and kick them off the planet. But I'll tell you this, I don't think that at all. I think He'll move through His people because He's so gracious and kind. But I don't think He appreciates our building His house our way with our wisdom. And when we're in an atmosphere of political shifting... We need to build his house his way. And I'll tell you why. Because here's a prophetic word about what's going on in our political climate and in our day. God is humbling America. I'm not saying he's destroying it. I don't know what's next. I pray for good things to come. I'm not going to go overboard. But no matter what it looks like by and by, I believe with all my heart prophetically that God is humbling America. And God is humbling the American church. And in a climate that if you judge that and find it true, where it's not just King Uzziah is dead and there's a political shift, it's that God's humbling His people. That's the context Isaiah was in the house of the Lord and saw the Lord exalted. So if God is humbling us, then our expression of humility is to build his house his way. And I'm not stretching things by saying that. You tell me a better environment of humility than a family. Uh, seriously. Check out where I'm going. Amen, Cole. Even the, even the house dog knows. The house dog. I mean... To, to be married or to be children of a family or to be parents in a family or to be a part of any kind of family because we all, all, all of us apply to that somehow. Even if we're grown up and single, we used to be children in a household. Man, talk about having to live for other people and not just tolerate. You can't just bolt up. Uh, you know, I don't like you know I don't like this, so you're gone. Like I always joke around about Evan. You know he gets he doesn't like our devotions and he doesn't. Like, you know, Gina's cooking for a season, so he's going to go attend the Lubo family for a season. You don't do that in family. You got to conform. You got to work things out. And that requires humility. Family requires humility. It creates humility. Because you can't bolt. You got to work it out. You got to love. You got to serve if you're going to create family. If you're going to exist in a family. Ain't it true? So if we're not building God's temple as family, it means we're building God's temple with arrogance. Because we're finding a way to build His, quote, house in a way that releases us from family covenant obligations, which means they're built through arrogance instead of humility. So don't tell me about just praying all night. Are you building God's house? Which means are you forming His house as family, not as an audience listening to a pastor? 
Because if that is how we're building it, in a way where we can afford to stay distant, it means we're building it through human arrogance. Not just human wisdom, but human arrogance. The only way to express the humility is to build God's house as a family. That's his way. Or else there's no humility there. Well, I'm very humble because I helped you know, paint that house. But those are acts of humility when we're helping set up the chairs and we're helping you know, fix the church or whatever it is. But it doesn't reach the depths of the kind of house that God feels comfortable living in if we're not expressing the kind of humility that creates family and that is required by family. You see the connections I'm making? So when I say build God's house His way, that's what I'm talking about. If we're not formulating family, there's a lack of His wisdom and humility. And it's just not God's address. David says, if I want Him, i got to go to His house. I don't randomly just go through these neighborhoods here knocking on the door saying, is Mike here... Are, is Brett, are Brett and Amy home? It's like, who are Brett and Amy? If I want to go where they are, I go to their house. I go to whoever, all of it. You know, of course, we could be visiting. And, you know, we should be canvassing our neighborhoods, but not looking for people that don't live at those houses. People live at their address. And David knew this very well. So he says, if I want to see the beauty of the Lord, I got to go to his house. Some scholars say, well, David's not asking literally to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. He means it metaphorically. He doesn't want to just live in the temple. He's a king. He's got other things to do. I would say even so. I think there's at least something literal to it. I think David spent time in the temple precincts praying. But even if he's using the temple as a metaphor, it's still in his mind. There's a concrete place even in his language that he associates God's presence with. He doesn't just think abstractly, God's presence. He thinks concretely. He's in his house. So even if I'm praying that metaphorically, even if I'm experiencing God in the fields as a shepherd, in one sense, I'm concretely in God's house. I've got to be at his address if I'm going to experience his presence. And the way we're interpreting that is God's people... As family, that's the place God delights to dwell in the most. Amen. Look at some of these benefits. In, first of all, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Um, again, you know, our private time in our closets with the Lord can be so precious and powerful, there's nothing greater. But there's a beauty of the Lord expressed in and through His people we don't see anywhere else. It's just His favorite place. So there's a beauty there we have to be in the house to see. Because there's God dimensions in all of us. That's why when the, the people from different parts of life come together, God in his variety, let's, in the, let's say that better, in the, um, the manifold wisdom, he can be seen. That's why God chose one nation, Israel, because he wanted to bless all nations. Because without a remnant from every single nation and people group, God can't be revealed in the fullness. There's just something about every individual and every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue that expresses a different dimension of the glories of Jesus. So in the, sm- in the, in the mini form, we have to have city churches and, and congregations that are made up of family 
if we want to see God in His manifold wisdom and in the multiplied beauties of His presence to come through with the fullness that is spoken of in Ephesians 3 from an apostolic point of view rather than the liturgical or just the typical conventional point of view. Again, the point is not to criticize. The point is to say, where's the beauty of the Lord? Unless all are contributing. Where's the beauty of the Lord? David says, in his house I see his beauty. But not only that, I meditate or I inquire or I discern. The word can even mean discern. I think the whole idea is things get clear in the house of the Lord. We all know there's times God speaks to us clearly in our private prayer. It's not to negate that. Something, you know, that's the primary relationship with all of us, is community with God Himself. But some things just don't come clear unless we're in the house of the Lord. Just what the kind of prayer Mike asked for today. I just feel like it's it's through the church. Clarity's gonna come for this certain thing that he's asking for to unfold before him. That's, I'm thinking, okay, but that's, that's what I was going to mention today. It's one of the benefits of the house of the Lord. I mean, there have been many times when we gather together in just as, in a sense as an ecclesia, but even in many years ago when we would just have prophetic prayer together and everybody would share what's on their hearts. Years ago, still in Pensacola, that my life was changed because God gave me so much clarity just because I was listening what the saints were saying there were times it's like were you listening to my prayer time this morning before i came here and i was one time i was even i needed god's voice so so much but and people specifically called me out i hadn't even requested for it but then in our groups there have been times even more than that that i came into the house of the lord with huge questions and burdens and i left completely settled and clear because I was with the saints and they prayed out loud and they prophesied even without knowing they were ministering to me they were ministering directly to me of course I testified to it but the point is we weren't set up for that consciously God just did it it's one of the benefits of God's house uh, the first one we see is beauty the second one man we, we get clarity there's just some things we don't quite ever get unless we're coming together and he goes on in verse 5, I didn't read this yet, but the day of trouble he'll conceal me in the tar- tabernacle. In the secret place of his hand he'll hide me. He'll lift me up on a rock. So there's not only protection, but then victory. All, It all comes from the benefit of God's house. Being connected spiritually and then gathering with healthy frequency brings protection in our lives we wouldn't have otherwise. And then victory. And it all comes through, I think, oftentimes those first two benefits seeing the Lord's beauty and experiencing that washing over the soul, that sense of transcendence that all is well. Then, of course, getting clarity, that provides a kind of protection in itself, as well as then lifting up to victory. But sometimes it's just the gathering. Like Hebrews, exhort one another day after day as long as it's called today so that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's such a protection in God's house that we don't get outside of it. That's why when Paul had to give, or you know, Jesus taught this, and the, the early churches all practiced this, if there was a severe point of discipline where a person repu- refused to repent after you know, th- at least three strong exhortations, when, they, when that person would be removed from the church, just to be removed from the community of faith, was to be put into the realm of Satan. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, I handed him over to Satan. People read that, they're like, wow, what kind of mystical prayer 
did Paul pray? How do you hand someone over to Satan? What he means is he's not in the fellowship anymore. The only safe place. The fellowship of the saints is the only non-Satan realm in our world. I, I don't, you know, I mean nature, God. I'm talking about as far as society and living under the powers of the air. When you're in God's temple, you're safe as far as being in right relationship. When you're outside of God's temple, which was a form of discipline, which was ultimate. When you're placed outside of that, Paul called that the realm of Satan. That's, that's pretty heavy. I mean, that's pretty strong church theology. I mean, who even lives that way? You can just come and go to different churches as you want. Who even thinks that there's actual parameters that are defined? We don't have our own obligation of covenant. We, we go like consumers going through a mall. There's no definition. There's no clarity between safe haven and vulnerability. So if this church right there has to correct someone, and I've experienced this, not myself being corrected, thankfully. I've been corrected before, but not to where I had to be booted. It's very rare. But one time it happened where I was involved in someone being removed from the fellowship because of their stubborn uh, lack of repentance and they're bringing really ugly talk and gossip. It's like they would not stop. So finally we had to publicly remove them. Only time it's ever happened. They just went to another church. Actually, they went to another church. We went to those elders and said, he's under discipline. Well, what should I do? I'm like, you should do exactly what we would do for you. If you put them under discipline, you're elders. The city elders have spoken. You can't be bouncing off like a pinball wherever you want to go. So then that pastor said, all right, I got it. I said, look, if you made that decision, if you had gone that far with that brother and you had to remove them from the fellowship, you tell us about it, it's done. We're not going to interview that person. You guys made a decision. You guys are awesome elders. You're men of God. We trust you. So we're asking you to do the same thing for us. And he was like, you're right. Well, then they just went to another church. <laughs> Where are the definitions? Where are the parameters? There's protection in God's house. That's why we have to build it as a family so that there's something there to be protected by. This is why in Haggai I said... Some of the reason why I'm withholding blessings because you're not building my house, you're building your house. It's like you're, you're left vulnerable without my house prioritized. That's powerful. Who thinks this way? Well, the Lord does. The apostles do. And so do those who embrace apostolic ministry. So what else can we say about this? Oh, and my time is almost up. So I got a good two messages out of this outline. Let's see here. Hmm. Perhaps um, I did start late. Let me take a few more minutes and talk about building God's house more practically. And um, then I'll finish the rest next time. Is that okay? Now it is 1213, but I started late. In all seriousness, where is everybody at? Can we afford a few more minutes? You don't have to lie back to me. You can say yes or no. Honestly. Okay. Right, yes. And about how much time? Like 10 minutes? 5, 4, 3? Okay, 10. All right, then I'll try to take just 10 because that's what I've Or a little less. All right, how to build God's house. Um, I would like for us to think in terms of the image of the table of the Lord, uh, the place of the Lord's Supper, as an image that helps define fellowship. But here's what I mean by that. I'm not going overboard with this idea of just having the Lord's Supper all the time. I mean the Lord's Supper, and more concretely, the Lord's table. 
both literally and like as a symbol. I believe the Lord's table should be in the middle of our fellowship as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but even when we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper, the idea of a table drawing family together is an important uh, symbol to, to build family. Okay, so first of all, the Lord's Supper, it's one of the few things that Jesus gave us a very specific tradition for. It's not a mass. It's not a high liturgical communion. It's not even low church evangelical communion. It's a meal. But the reason why it's a meal is because of the power of table fellowship, both literally in itself and as a concept. Even Luke's gospel emphasizes banquets and meals, not just the Lord's Supper, but meals in general as a symbol of God's kingdom. You know, in, in Luke 24, which is kind of like the, the climactic expression of the table of the Lord in Luke, uh, you have Jesus invited to eat with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that. But really, that's, you know, in Luke's gospel, he emphasizes it all throughout. You just look up the word table in a concordance. Even though oftentimes it's in italics, it's not in the original Greek, but it's the verb to recline implies to recline at the table. So still, if you do a study, at least a search for the word table, you'll see how often it occurs in Luke. And it kind of comes to its climax at the end where Jesus appears as a stranger to the the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And... um, they invite him in. He was going to pass by, which is very interesting. The Lord was going to keep walking until they invited him into fellowship. So it's interesting because once he was inside at the table, he became the host. He took the bread and broke it and said a prayer, which is out of order unless you're the Lord. Because he was brought in as a guest. And then he just took the place of the host. But there's a nice little statement for us there. It's like, he is very, very polite. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself in anybody's house. I heard the story of, of a, um, back in the, in the, the darker, more violent days of communism in a Romanian prison, a person was led to the Lord by simply hearing that story. Because to that person, a leader meant a dictator who robbed you of your freedom, your personality, oppressive, oppressing those that were under tyranny for the sake of the leader. Okay. When he heard that Jesus was that kind of leader, that he wouldn't even come in unless he was invited, he says, I want to follow that king. That's such a refreshing kind of leadership where you're, you know, there's a politeness and a humility. And so that's the way of the Lord, even I believe with His presence. In a, in a sense, even though we have God's presence, we won't experience the manifest presence in the house unless we really honor His presence. It's like we have to host Him. But once we host Him and honor His presence, He then hosts us and becomes the leader within His house, which is what He did on the road to Emmaus. Those, those are the two main Ideas that actually we're going to develop next time. The table of the Lord is what builds his house. But it's all for the sake of honoring his presence. It's not just for the sake of our being more family oriented. It's about God's presence. We want God on the earth. Fulfilling his own dreams. And expressing himself through us. So I'll tell you what. I will pause there. And we'll finish this next time. 
That was actually my plan anyway. I thought I'd get farther, but I got far enough. So let's use this as a setup for the next time. How about that, since we're going so late? So till next time. Let's pray, and um, we'll make it more practical in our next message. But in the meantime, let's really honor the table of the Lord, even as a metaphor for family. Because you'll see even in Luke, it's an outreach tool. Invite the lame, invite the blind. Just don't have your own dinners. Invite needy people. Make family. I mean, it's, it's the, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. It's something about family that, that manifests God's presence that becomes a drawing card even as we're reaching out. It's magnetic. Praise God. Well, Father, we thank you for the table of the Lord in our midst right now that we're drawn together as family, even though we're not eating right now. A little coffee on the table, but really symbolically, you're drawing family together. There's something so lovely of feel, of something so lovely about feeling like we belong and are connected to family that's led by you and fathered by you. And for this, we give you thanks. And we pray that you'll create that in our midst, but God, create this in our city. Awaken people to your transcendence that is only seen in your house. We pray for apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to be sent to our city and to be raised up within our city to restore your house so that you might be manifest. We pray for that kind of revival and build your work in our day, your way, in our midst. Jesus is King. He deserves it. I pray for your blessing. We pray together for your blessing on every family here, every child, every person, for the glory of God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for coming today. You're very welcome.